NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Sarah McCammon. Good morning. In Israel, some hostages are reuniting with their loved ones. They're slowly, uh, gradually getting back into reality, uh, into understanding what happened in Israel, what happened to their family. We'll talk with a family member, and we'll hear about what the Biden administration is doing to push for the release of American hostages. Plus, remembering a prominent pastor who challenged his church's ideas about who goes to heaven. Also, how to buy now, pay later, but not pay more. And as always, we have the puzzle. It's Sunday, November 26th. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The temporary truce in Gaza is in its third day as humanitarian groups rush aid to civilians. Another hostage for prisoners exchange between Israel and Hamas is planned for today. But as NPR's Brian Mann reports, tensions remain extremely high. Israeli military officials issued a warning to civilian Palestinians inside Gaza today, ordering them to remain in the south and not to travel within a half mile of the border with Israel. Meanwhile, in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, reports of violence surged. The Palestinian Health Ministry says at least eight Palestinian civilians were killed by Israeli soldiers over the last 24 hours. Basil Abu Nasser is a shopkeeper in Kalendia, a refugee camp near Ramallah. Abu Nasser told NPR it's good a truce is in place in Gaza, but he said there's no truce in the West Bank. They still raid our villages, they attack people, and they arrest. Israeli officials say the war against Hamas in Gaza will resume after the exchange of hostages and prisoners is over. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Russia says it's thwarted a wave of hostile Ukrainian drones headed for Moscow and several other regions of Russia. The apparent attacks came just a day after Ukraine accused the Kremlin of launching the largest drone barrage on the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, since the start of the war more than a year and a half ago. NPR's Charles Maines has details from Moscow. Russia's defense ministry says its air defenses destroyed at least 24 Ukrainian drones as they flew over large swaths of western Russia, with several brought down over the outskirts of Moscow. One drone struck an apartment building in the city of Tula, a few hours to the south of the capital. As a result, flights were temporarily canceled at all three of Moscow's main airports. The attacks came just a day after Russia launched some 75 drones on Kiev in an apparent attempt to overwhelm the city's air defenses. The Ukrainian response was reminiscent of earlier this year when drone attacks took place inside the Russian interior on a near-daily basis, even striking one of the Kremlin's towers last May. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was stabbed by a fellow inmate at a federal prison in Arizona. The 47-year-old was convicted of George Floyd's murder and sentenced to more than 20 years in prison. NPR's Juliana Kim has details. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison acknowledged an attack on Chauvin to the Star Tribune, which also reported that Chauvin is in stable condition. The Bureau of Prisons added that the inmate received life-saving measures and was later taken to a hospital for further evaluation. As of Saturday, it is not clear what prompted the altercation. NPR Juliana Kim reporting. Today's weather will be dicey for millions of weekend travelers. Snow in the Rockies and Plain States and rain in the east could make the trip home complicated. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Winter Hill Community and Innovation School in Somerville will not reopen to students. The school closed in June after a chunk of concrete fell from a ceiling onto a stairwell below. The concrete did not hit anyone. Somerville superintendent told the school committee last week that students will continue at the Edgerly Education Center for at least five more years while officials devise a new plan. On the MBTA, several changes are coming to the Green Line this week to allow for repairs. Starting tomorrow, some Green Line service will be suspended all day for a week. That includes the B branch between North Station and Babcock, the C and D branches between North Station and Kenmore, and the E branch between North Station and Heath Street. Shuttle buses will replace trolleys on the B, C, and D routes. E branch riders are asked to use Route 39 buses instead, which are fare-free between Copley and Heath Street. The Green Line extension also will shut down at night for the next week and a half. A Mass General doctor is warning families about some of the most common holiday hazards. Pediatric critical care physician Michael Flaherty says the small batteries found in some toys can be a hazard for young children. Lithium-ion batteries can be incredibly dangerous if swallowed by children. Um, They're called button batteries because they're literally shaped like buttons, and often it's difficult to determine when a child comes in if they swallowed a button, a coin, or a button battery. Uh, And these can cause a lot of burns and dangerousness to the esophagus and stomach if swallowed. He also urged people buying gifts for children to check that the gift is age-appropriate and has not been recalled. Electric bikes and scooters are illegal for people under the age of 16 to ride. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are heading back to Washington from Nantucket today. The Bidens have spent Thanksgiving on the island since the 1970s. They took part in annual traditions, including shopping at local stores and dining at the Brotherhood of Thieves restaurant. It is 30 degrees in Boston, getting cloudier today, and highs reaching the mid-40s. Rain tonight, heavy at times, rain likely in the morning tomorrow, then clearing up, and highs tomorrow in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Families of some of the Hamas-held hostages had emotional reunions with loved ones released on Friday and Saturday. Similar scenes unfolded in the West Bank as Palestinians held in Israeli prisons for years reunited with their families. They were freed as part of an internationally brokered agreement between Israel and Hamas. The deal includes the release of a total of 150 Palestinian prisoners in exchange for 50 hostages taken from Israel by Hamas in the October 7th attacks. It also allows for a temporary ceasefire to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. But just as Hamas was expected to release the second group of Israeli hostages yesterday, it said in a statement it was delaying their release over what it said were violations of the ceasefire agreement. Egypt and Qatar intervened and brought the agreement back on track. More hostages were released late last night in exchange for Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. Three of the Israelis who were released by Hamas are relatives of Itai Raviv, including his nine-year-old cousin. We spoke to him yesterday about his family. Now, your cousin, Ohad Munder Zakri, his mother and grandparents were all kidnapped from a kibbutz and taken into Gaza. 
Ohad turned nine, as I understand it, while being held hostage. He was released on Friday, along with his mother, Karen Munder, and grandmother, Ruthie Munder. First of all, have you been able to see them? How are they doing? So I haven't been able to see them yet, but I have spoken uh, to them on the phone. They're doing okay, uh, not the best. Uh, They seem fine physically. Uh, Mentally, uh, they're still in shock. It's been uh, quite a nightmare for, for us and obviously for them. And they were for almost 50 days in the hands of Hamas. And they're slowly, uh, gradually getting back into reality, uh, into understanding what happened in Israel, what happened to their family. One family member, Ruti and Abraham's son and Karen's uh, brother, he was murdered on October 7th. And also they learned Ruti, Karen and Ohad, uh, the three of them were together, but they weren't with Abraham, the grandfather. And they learned that uh, he is probably still alive and he's uh, in captivity because they thought he was murdered on October 7th as well. Did they seem to understand or what? Did, how much did they seem to understand about what had actually transpired on that day? No, so they didn't understand uh, the scale of everything. They knew that something was happening in their kibbutz. They had no idea of the, of the scale of it. And what we've been doing outside, how we've been advocating for their release, they thought maybe we think that they're dead and they're just missing. They didn't know that, that we know that they're kidnapped. And we knew that they were kidnapped uh, thanks to videos that Hamas published of them kidnapping people. They didn't know that these videos exist. What else do you know about the conditions under which they were being held these past seven or so weeks? Not too much. Uh, I know that they've been moved from place to place and that they got some food. I know that uh, in the past few weeks they didn't get uh, too much food, but sometimes they did get, sometimes they didn't. They lost some weight. I know that they didn't uh, shower uh, and it was difficult to go to the bathroom. Not the best conditions. Uh, You know, it's uh, in captivity. That's difficult. Um, They're still in shock. So we try to, to be easy on them and not ask too many questions. But this is what we understand from them so far. I saw there have been lots of photos and videos of these reunions being released. I saw a video of Ohad smiling and running toward a family member. Yeah, that's his father. How have they been spending their time in these these hours since they've been released? What are they doing? They are in the hospital, uh, in Schneider Hospital in Israel, which is a kid's uh, hospital. They're surrounded by uh, many um, professionals of both uh, doctors and um, therapists and uh, social workers and just anyone who can uh, assist them. And obviously family members and Oad was visited by his friends from school. Now they're still in the hospital. They're going to stay there probably for a few more days just to make sure that they are in fact uh, healthy uh, physically and uh, mentally. Mentally, it's going to take some time. I don't think you can recover that quickly from being held by a terrorist organization for seven weeks, especially if you're a nine-year-old boy. As we've mentioned, a temporary ceasefire is currently in place as part of the deal to release a limited number of hostages. Ohad's brother, Roy Zakri, said in a statement that, quote, we are happy, but we are not celebrating. What do you hope will happen going forward? I hope that all hostages uh, are released. I think this is the most important thing that should happen as soon as possible. 
And I hope that both Israelis and Palestinians can live peacefully without the threat of uh, Hamas or any other terror organization. And this is what I hope to see in the future. Uh, but first, again, all the hostages should be back home immediately because this is the number one human rights issue um, that started this tension and this war. And once it's solved, I think everything could go more peacefully in this region. Three of Itai Raviv's relatives who were held hostage by Hamas were released on Friday. Another remains in captivity. Itai, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for uh, speaking with me. More hostages are expected to be released today, but there were no Americans among the first two groups of hostages released by Hamas so far this weekend. There was a brief, tense holdup in the release of additional hostages yesterday when it seemed unclear if the deal would even hold or if hostilities would immediately resume. Ultimately, the second batch of hostages were exchanged for Palestinians held in Israeli prisons, and the four-day pause in fighting seems to be largely holding, but the situation remains fluid. When President Biden was asked on Friday specifically about when the American hostages held by Hamas might be released, here's what he had to say. We don't know when that will occur, but we're going to be expected to occur. And uh, we don't know what the list of all the hostages are and when they'll be released, but we know the numbers where they're going to be released. So it's my hope and expectation will be soon. To hear a little bit more about what President Biden is hoping for in the coming days and weeks, we're joined by NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Good morning, Asma. Good morning, Sarah. So it sounds like halfway into this four-day truce slash prisoner exchange, there are still quite a few unknowns. Two Americans were released in late October, but none have been since. Asma, mm-hmm. what have you heard about why no Americans were released among those who were released so far these past couple of days? Well, Sarah, we don't have a clear answer. In total, this temporary pause in fighting is supposed to secure the release of at least 50 women and children. And a spokesman with Biden's National Security Council said yesterday that they remain hopeful that this deal will include three American citizens. Uh, They said that they are still early in this temporary truce, this temporary process, Um, but they will not comment on individual cases as the process is underway. We had been previously told last week by a senior administration official that this deal could secure the release of a small child, an American citizen whose parents were killed during the October 7th attacks. And I will point out that there are estimated to be some 250 people in total who were taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th, and it's not clear how many are American. Uh, We've been told by the administration that some 10 Americans are currently unaccounted for. Asma, what is the Biden administration doing to try to keep things moving in the right direction between Hamas and Israel? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Sarah, you mentioned at the outset here this hours-long delay yesterday. And at that point, it seemed really unclear whether this deal would even hold up. And I will say the Biden administration was rather instrumental behind the scenes to shaping this negotiation and making sure that things went through. I mean, part of the issue from Hamas's perspective is this is not solely about hostages. It is also about allowing more aid into Gaza to help the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are prevented from leaving Gaza to have uh, basic necessities like food. Uh, and so yesterday morning where things were were being held up, President Biden spoke with the Emir of Qatar and the Qatari Prime Minister about mechanisms to resolve the holdups. Uh, Qatar has been the main mediator with Hamas 
And the White House says that senior Biden administration officials were in regular contact throughout the day yesterday with the Israelis, the Qataris and the Egyptians to figure out a way to get this deal back on track. And, and ultimately, it seems like it worked. Is there any thinking that helping broker this deal might help Biden politically, especially with some of those younger voters with whom he's mm-hmm. been struggling? Uh, You know, he was certainly uh, key in getting this hostage deal in place, and his team had weeks of intense negotiations to make this happen. So, Sarah, I do think it is important to say that, you know, the president does deserve credit for this all. But what young voters want is not a temporary truce. They want a ceasefire. And it's not clear to me that if the fighting resumes and the images on social media of, of death and destruction in Gaza continue, that Biden will really see much of a shift with younger voters. Um, our most recent PBS NewsHour Marist poll from earlier this month found that a majority of Democrats, and particularly younger voters, thought that the Israeli military response to the Hamas attack had been, quote, too much. And sticking with voters for a moment, President Biden is going to visit Colorado this week to highlight his economic policies. Is he getting any traction there with voters? Mm -hmm. He does not seem to be. I mean, polls have consistently shown that Americans have a lot of angst about the economy. Uh, The White House seems to think that this is a message and branding issue, not necessarily a substance issue. And so they are convinced they need to keep selling the president's economic wins to the public. And that's what you're going to see this week. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Good to talk with you as always, Asma. Good to talk with you as well. Listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up in about 15 minutes, WBUR's Andrea Shea has the story on an old magic society seeking new members. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Increasing clouds today. Highs in the mid-40s. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, playing now through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. HuntingtonTheater.org and Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. A temporary ceasefire in Gaza is holding on this day three of the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. Hamas yesterday handed over a total of 17 hostages, 13 Israeli, four Thai, In return, Israel says it released 39 Palestinian prisoners. It's expected another exchange will occur at some point today. No American hostages have been freed yet, Vice President Kamala Harris told reporters yesterday the Biden administration's highest priority is the release of American citizens being held by Hamas. 
Pope Francis is reciting the weekly Sunday Angelus prayer from the chapel of his residence on Vatican grounds. The 86-year-old pontiff is still under the weather from the flu. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. This week, the Texas Supreme Court will consider this question. Are the state's abortion laws harming women when they face pregnancy complications? The case posing that question was brought by the Center for Reproductive Rights. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is fiercely defending the state's current abortion laws. Here to talk about it is NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Hi, Selena. Hi, Sarah. We both have been to Texas reporting on this. I was in Austin when this case was announced in March, but new plaintiffs keep joining the case. Remind us, if you would, where the case stands and what it's all about. Right. So when you went down in March, there were five patients and two OBGYNs who were the plaintiffs in this case. In May, there were 13 patients. And as of this month, there are 20 patients suing Texas over its abortion exception. So the current medical exception to the abortion ban in the state says abortion is allowed when someone's life or a major bodily function, that's a quote, is in danger. But these women argue that language doesn't work to protect women when complications come up. And that's what's at the heart of this case. You spoke to one of the new plaintiffs recently. Who is she and what's her story? Well, she is actually a physician, an OBGYN currently in residency. Her name is Danny Matheson, and she's 28 years old. Back in May of 2021, she and her husband were really excited when they found out they were pregnant for the first time and everything was going fine until about September of 2021. That's when she had an ultrasound. That's called the anatomy scan, which happens around halfway through a pregnancy. She could tell things weren't right as soon as the sonographer started. You know, as she scanned through my abdomen, I saw like, oh, there's something wrong with her spine. Can you show me that again? And she's like, no, I can't, but the doctor will come and talk to you. And then, oh, there's something wrong with her heart. Oh, what, what her kidneys. And I kept asking the sonographer to show me again because I could read the scan myself. Danny comes from a family of physicians. Her OBGYN was actually her aunt. And after the scan, they talked. I think I, I asked one question. I said, is it lethal? And she said, yes. Danny knew she wanted to have an abortion, but she knew it wouldn't be possible in Texas. Right, because, Selena, this happened, let's look back, in 2021 in the fall. This was before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but it was after Texas passed that law banning most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, the law known as SB8, sometimes called the Bounty Hunter Law. How did that fit into her pregnancy and her medical situation? Well, she was 18 weeks of pregnancy, so she knew she had no chance of getting an abortion in Texas. She didn't know where to start calling clinics out of state, figuring out flights and rental cars and hotels. Her mom is also a doctor, and she took charge. My mom was just like, take a Xanax. I will have it figured out when you wake up. 
and I'm very, very incredibly lucky for that. But it was also very scary for me because she is a physician. And with SBA, it is the people who help people who get abortions that are punished. And so even though we were leaving the state and theoretically we weren't doing anything illegal, there was, you know, the tiny goblin in the back of my head going, your mom's going to go to jail for this. She did get to New Mexico. She was able to have an abortion there. And she says when she heard about this lawsuit, she wanted to get involved right away. She says she feels relieved now to be one of the plaintiffs. I don't just have a sad story, but I'm doing something with that sad story. And there is a happy coda here. She actually has a healthy pregnancy right now. She's coming up on 30 weeks. It's always so good to hear that after these really sad stories. You know, Selena, you also spoke to an attorney who helped another one of the new plaintiffs in this case. What did you learn? All right. So the patient here is Christina Nunez, and her story is different. It's not about pregnancy complication. It's about how pregnancy can make other health conditions a lot worse. Christina is 36 years old. She has had hypertension and diabetes since she was a child. A few years ago, she had to start dialysis as well. She's also a trained nurse. She's originally from Mexico. She speaks only Spanish. She was shocked to find out she was pregnant in May of this year, and her health quickly worsened. This is Kylie Sunderland, an attorney who worked with her this past spring. After Christina learned she was pregnant, her OBGYN and a maternal fetal specialist told her that if she decided to continue the pregnancy, it was extremely likely that either she, the baby, or both would die. And so as a trained nurse, Christina made an informed decision to end her pregnancy. But of course, again, she could not do that in Texas. She lives in El Paso. So while she was trying to figure out how to get to New Mexico for an abortion, her health got worse and worse. She started needing to do dialysis every day. She had painful blood clots. She felt like she didn't have the time to travel to see a doctor. Instead of being able to leave the state to access care, she had to go to the emergency room because the thrombosis um, was turning her limbs purple and then eventually black. She went to an ER on June 12th, but the hospital staff would not give her an abortion. So after days of waiting in the hospital, Christina Nunez got connected with a helpline run by the group If, When, How. They provide free and confidential legal services. And that is how Kylie Sunderland got involved and helped get her to a different hospital where she finally got the abortion. In the weeks after she was discharged, her health slowly improved. Sunderland told me through the whole ordeal, Christina was extremely composed. She was asking for clarity, advocating for herself, and now she's joined this lawsuit, suing the state for the role its abortion laws played in delaying her care. And how is the state of Texas responding? I have not gotten any response from the Texas Attorney General's office to my request for comment on the new plaintiffs. The Texas Medical Board, which is also a defendant in this case, has told me it will not comment on pending litigation. But in a hearing that I attended in Austin in July, lawyers for the attorney general's office in Texas argued that the women had not been harmed by the state's laws. They say the law is clear, the exception is sufficient as is, and suggested that the doctors were responsible for any harms the patients claimed. In filings, they actually went through each patient's story one by one and explained why the state's laws were not to blame. So there have been a lot of developments in this case. This week, there's a hearing before the Texas Supreme Court. What are you expecting? 
So this is scheduled for Tuesday. It's going to be live streamed. The plaintiffs are not asking for the abortion bans to go away, to be clear. They're asking for the medical exception to be broadened. But the justices aren't necessarily going to take that on. They're just considering whether to apply a temporary injunction. A district judge in Austin said, yes, there should be an injunction and set a court date for next April. So the question of the injunction is really what this hearing is about. Yeah. And what could be the outcome of this hearing, the impact? Well, I should mention that all of the nine justices here are elected Republicans. Um, The Texas Supreme Court could say there's no need for an injunction. Let's keep the law as is for now and leave it there. Then the case would go to trial in April as scheduled. But the court could also dig into the merits of this case. So if the justices do that, for example, if they show they're inclined to agree with the state, that could mean the state files for a motion to dismiss the case. There's no need for a trial if Texas is ultimately going to win anyway. And there's no way to know really which way the justices are going to go, what they're going to make of these patients' ordeals, and how much they're going to want to wade into this right now. We'll have to watch the hearing to find out. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin, thanks so much. Thank you. Who is a heretic and who is holy? The answer, of course, depends on who you ask. Bishop Carlton Pearson was one of the country's most prominent black televangelists in the 1980s, but then he was deemed a heretic after he embraced a concept called universal salvation. Here's Pearson on CNN in 2010. My gay friends, and I have several over the years, uh, I got tired of sending them to hell. It messed with my theology and my heart. And so I started preaching the gospel of inclusion, saying that Hindus, Muslims, Jews, everybody has access to the grace of the God we preach. Pearson was saying he no longer believed in hell, that almost everyone would go to heaven. And that stance cost Bishop Pearson many members of his church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the support of many fellow Pentecostals. Carlton Pearson died last week from cancer at the age of 70. To talk about his life, we're joined by his agent, Will Bogle, from New York. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, before you became Bishop Carlton Pearson's agent, you were one of his followers, as I understand it. What drew you personally to his teachings? Well, I was mostly a fan of his music, and I grew up Pentecostal, apostolic, fundamentalist. And Carlton's message then was the very traditional teachings he formally embraced. So I became a fan and a follower of his early in my teens. I used to play his music for my great-grandmother. She was a convalescent, had a stroke, and she was very, very religious. And those songs that he sang really helped us get closer together in those years of her life. So I mostly learned about Carlton and really started following him before he had a shift in consciousness. And so the shift he went through in his thinking uh... Why did Bishop Pearson come to believe in this idea of universal salvation or the gospel of inclusion, as he called it, the idea that everyone goes to heaven? What did he tell you about how he made that shift? Well, it's been very well documented, his rethinking, as he called it, of his faith, with the type of person he was. He was a very loving, very kind, very generous person. The way I interpreted uh, some of his messaging was that God was not a worse person than our best people are. And if our best people are kind and loving, then God has to even be more since he was the creator. Not that God couldn't be vengeful, but he was more loving than he was, I guess, mean. Hmm. 
What do you think that was about? Why was the price so high? I mean, why were people so attached to this idea of a God that condemns people to eternal damnation? They say the first person through the through the glass is always the bloodiest. So I think Bishop Pearson rocked the boat a little too hard. And some of the responses he's gotten might have been knee-jerk reactions. Some people just feeling like they needed to double down to protect their own infrastructure. And some people really felt like they needed to defend the faith. And I think to not allow their institution to be dismantled from externally or internally. And by the institution, I mean fundamentalism, the church, their churches, and their way of life. Bishop Pearson also got involved in politics. He advised George W. Bush, ran for mayor of Tulsa. How did his evolving theological beliefs shape his political views, if at all? I think he also did some work with President Clinton as well. Um, As he shifted theologically, he had more of a tolerance for uh, gays and not tolerance in the fact that he now can stomach them, but more in terms of what he believed to be inalienable rights for all mankind. So politically, I feel like he started trying to help all mankind uh, find their place in society. And I think the the big group that might have been most disenfranchised, at least in that point, would be the gays and the lesbians or the LGBTQ community. We've been talking a lot about Bishop Pearson's ideas, his beliefs, and, and his ministry, but you knew him, of course, personally. He was a mentor and a friend, right? What do you want us to know about Bishop Carlton Pearson, the man? My regard for Carlton Pearson was that he was a great human being. He was a great friend. He was a great father. He tried to be a great husband. And he was a great support to the people he cared about. He came to Georgia when I got married. He married me and my wife. Just last year, I lost my brother to an overdose, 36 years old, and Carlton showed up at the funeral at his own expense because he wanted to be there with me in New York. This is the measure of the man that I am respectful of, not because everything he said I agreed with, and that was one of his sticking points. He said, we can disagree without being disagreeable. And if society would find a way to disagree without being disagreeable, we would have a lot more tolerance for people that don't share our opinions or don't share our views or don't even share our our positions or passions in any respect. That's Will Bogle, the agent and friend of Bishop Carlton Pearson, who died of cancer last week. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Be my friend, Lord. Be my friend. Come on, sing it. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Salem, Massachusetts is where Harry Houdini famously escaped from a jail cell in 1906. And at least since then, the town has attracted magicians. 
But lately, enrollment in Salem's historic magic society has been dwindling. So members are pulling up their sleeves in search of new recruits, as WBUR's Andrea Shea reports. You don't see this every day. Nearly a dozen magicians of all ages are packed into a room, armed with rubber bands, props, a cute brown rabbit, and more than a few dog-eared decks of cards. I have a trick right here I can show you if you're interested in seeing it. I have four kings here. Name any one of those four kings. Bill Jensen's Houdini emblazoned tie may or may not play a part in his sleight of hand. That's what they call close-up magic. You do it right under people's noses. Jensen is president of the Society of American Magicians Witch City Assembly. He's a retired postal worker and a hobbyist magician. Other society members are professionals. We have some people that are clowns. We have some people that do balloons, uh, bubbles. The National Society of American Magicians is the world's oldest magic organization. In the early 1900s, it boomed under Harry Houdini's leadership. Salem's chapter was founded 50 years ago, but membership has been disappearing. The club blames the pandemic, shuttered magic shops, and YouTube, where a lot of newbies go to learn tricks. Now the magicians are holding events like this to woo and wow recruits. You don't want to expose all your secrets, but you want to give them a little taste of something so that maybe they'll come back another time. And then as you move up into the group, we have people who do everything from just a a basic card trick to sawing somebody in half. That sounds intriguing to the one young recruit who shows up. I just think I should saw someone in half in my life. Will McLaughlin is here with his dad. He's 12 years old. I started doing magic because I was looking at Dan Rhodes on YouTube Shorts, and I just saw one of his tricks, and I slowed the video down, and I decided to do some of them on my own. Now he's surrounded. So, Will, do you know how to shuffle a deck of cards? Not that good. Well, that's okay. This is a good learning experience. There's a pharaoh shuffle, an overhand shuffle, an underhand shuffle. There's the show-off behind the back shuffle. I have you shuffle the deck or I shuffle the deck. It doesn't matter. I don't need to know what that card is. I want to know what this card is on the bottom. That's my card. Those five years of practice, guys. Come on. There we go. Look. Thank you. Thank you. That's 39-year-old career magician Stephen Silva. He grew up in Salem and learned tricks at magic shops. He recently rejoined the society to help keep it alive. There are magicians that have come up that have thought of things that may be kind of exclusive or underground. And so in order to see some of those things, you have to come out and meet new people and learn new magic. Well, Will McLaughlin is game and says yes, he'll join the Magician's Youth Program. Well, I did like all the magic tricks, and I'm still wondering how some of them are done. While the Magic Society only nabbed one new member at this event, its magicians believe more will materialize for the next one. For NPR News, I'm Andrea Shea. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Today marks the groundbreaking for a permanent memorial to the Coconut Grove tragedy in Boston. 81 years ago this week, the nightclub burned down in the deadliest fire ever in the city and the deadliest nightclub fire in history. Today's ceremony and vigil will take place at Statler Park on Stewart Street near the site of the 1942 disaster. The Winter Hill Community and Innovation School in Somerville will not reopen. This past June, the pre-K through 8th grade school closed after a chunk of concrete fell from a ceiling onto a stairwell. The concrete did not hit anyone. The Somerville superintendent told the school committee last week that students will continue at the Edgerly Education Center for at least five more years while officials devise a new plan. It's 34 degrees in Boston, getting cloudier today, highs in the mid-40s, some rain tonight, heavy at times. Rain likely in the morning tomorrow, then clearing and highs in the low 50s. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org and Merrimack Repertory Theater with A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Charles Dickens' time in Lowell. Performances begin November 29th. Tickets at mrt.org. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us as always is Will Shorts, the puzzle editor of the New York Times and the puzzle master for Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Hi, Sarah. Nice to talk to you again. So, Will, can you remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from Joseph Young, who conducts the blog Puzzle Ria. I said, name a musical instrument plus part of that instrument, drop the last letter of the instrument, and then rearrange all the remaining letters to name another musical instrument. What is it? Well, the first one is cello, and part of that is a bow. Drop the O from cello and add the letters of bow, and you can get cowbell. (laughs) Okay, listeners like their cowbell. So out of 151 correct entries, Tobias Duncan of San Cristobal, New Mexico is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Tobias, and welcome. Well, thank you. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? I have been playing for decades. I have submitted, I think, literally hundreds of times. But where I live is really poor cell reception, and I'm never around at the right place on the weekend. So you may have called me before. (laughs) But this is your time. Boy, I hope so. 
When you're not playing the puzzle, Tobias, what else do you like to do? I'm a volunteer firefighter. Uh, I spend time doing the van life thing in Mexico during the winters lots of times. I camp on remote beaches. Uh, but it's probably time for me to grow up and get a real job. Fascinating. Okay, well, Tobias, are you ready to play the puzzle? I am. All right, take it away, Will. All right, Tobias and Sarah. Every answer today is a word that starts with the letters T-A, as in teaching assistant. And I'd like you to get them from their anagrams. For example, if I said bleat, B-L-E-A-T, you would say table. Every answer starts T-A, and here's your first one, state, S-T-A-T-E. Oh, taste. Taste is it. Number two is prate, P-R-A-T-E. P-R-A-T-E. Tarp, or no. uh, Taper. Taper is it. Titan, T-I-T-A-N. And the next, the third letter is an I. Uh, This is something you don't want to happen to your food or your water. That's true. Taint. Oh, my gosh. Taint, is it? Tonal. T-O-N-A-L. Talon. Talon, is it? Attic. A-T-T-I-C. A-T-T-I-C. Tacit. Tacit, is it? Now they're getting longer. Lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E. L-A-T-T-I-C-E. Okay, this one's hurting my brain. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a word that means relating to feeling. Tactile? Tactile, is it? Mm. And here's your last one. Alpinist, A-L-P-I-N-I-S-T. And this is something that you wouldn't want your car to go into. Or yourself emotionally. Tailspin. Tailspin is it. Good job. Great job, Tobias. You were way ahead of me on most of those, I have to say. How do you feel? Uh, I feel relieved. uh, And I'm very excited to get my lapel pin. It's probably the only uh, material item that I actually covet in this world. Well, we will get you one. And you're right, for playing our puzzle today, you'll get your weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Tobias, what member station do you listen to? I listen to KRZA out of Alamosa, Colorado, and KUNM out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. That is Tobias Duncan of San Cristobal, New Mexico. Thanks so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. Okay, well, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Tom Helfrich of Sacramento. Think of a common sign seen along a highway. Rearrange the letters to name something inside a car. What is it? So again, a common sign seen along a highway. Rearrange the letters to name something inside a car. What is it? And when you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, November 30th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Don't forget to include your phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And important, if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of The New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. 
Thanks, Will. Thank you, Sarah. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And for many of us, it's also the most expensive time of the year. Holiday shopping is in full swing, and millions of Americans will be using a popular tool to finance their purchases. It's called Buy Now, Pay Later. When used with caution, it can help consumers manage their budgets, but there's also a very real danger of getting trapped in debt. To talk about that, Cora Lewis is with us. She covers personal finance for the Associated Press. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So, Cora, just remind us, what is Buy Now, Pay Later? How does it work? And can consumers pay for things later without actually paying more? Buy Now, Pay Later does tend to work the way it's marketed most of the time. So a consumer makes a down payment at the time of purchase and then makes an agreement to make between four and six payments at two-week intervals down the line. And they are typically zero-interest loans. And Cora, who are the typical consumers who tend to rely on buy now, pay later as a financing option? Research has found that uh, users of buy now, pay later tend to be younger. They're more than twice as likely to be under 35, and they tend to be more economically fragile. So they might have subprime or near prime credit scores, or they might have less good credit or no credit profile at all. So some Black Friday deals are still going on and we have Cyber Monday coming up. How much are consumers putting on buy now, pay later? A lot, (laughs) more than ever. In fact, buy now, pay later products really gained a lot of popularity during the pandemic. They multiplied tenfold between 2019 and 2021. And this is predicted to be their biggest year yet. So in October, People spent $6.4 billion online with Buy Now, Pay Later. That's up 6% year over year. Uh, in November, that number should be $9.3 billion, with $782 million on Cyber Monday. So as many as one in five people plan to use Buy Now, Pay Later over the holiday season. And why? Why is this becoming so much more popular? I think there are a lot of reasons. Uh, Interest rates for credit cards are at record highs and Americans are carrying more credit card debt than ever. Inflation is causing people to really stretch their budgets. Uh, Student loan repayments have restarted. And so what different analysts uh, have found is that buy now, pay later is a way to let consumers balance some of these debt obligations that they have while still buying gifts or uh, meeting basic household needs. It's buy now, pay later, but not not pay never. So how much time do you really have? And what are the penalties if you don't pay on time? So one of the tougher things about this type of payment is that it can't really help you build credit because positive payments aren't reported to credit bureaus, but it can hurt your credit. So if you do miss payments and you are delinquent or if you eventually default, that can show up on your credit score. Other risks include fees. Sometimes as you miss payments, those could add up to either a percentage of your purchase or kind of flat fees. And then the interest models are also different across companies, across purchases. So it can get pretty complicated pretty quickly. So lots of things can go wrong. When does this kind of financing make sense? I mean, when can it actually work in your favor? 
So if you are really on top of your budget and you know your cash flow, you know what your future economic uh, situation is going to be, it can make sense. I think one thing about buy now, pay later is that merchants and retailers love it because people tend to buy more uh, when they use these financing options. So good for the companies, maybe not for the consumer always. I think that's what is going to have to be seen down the line in terms of the consequences of this new payment model. You know, will it be safe for the consumer? Will regulation kind of catch up to it? Uh, Or will people be overextending themselves because the loan companies aren't talking to one another or reporting to the credit bureaus, which means that maybe people are able to sign up for credit more easily than, than they would if it were a more regulated form of credit. Cora Lewis with the Associated Press, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Sarah. And happy holidays. And happy holidays to you. Long before the Backstreet Boys or BTS, there was a boy band called the Comedian Harmonists. A vocal sextet in Weimar, Germany, they were world famous. But once the Nazis rose to power, they were silenced because three members were Jewish. Jeff London reports their story has been turned into a Broadway musical called Harmony, with a score by pop superstar Barry Manilow. About 30 years ago, playwright Bruce Sussman, who had collaborated with Barry Manilow on the musical Copacabana, went to a screening of a three and a half hour German documentary about the comedian harmonists. And instead of being daunted by it, I was completely overwhelmed by it in the most positive way. And I ran to a payphone and called Barry and said, I think. I might have found the story we would like to musicalize. Barry Manilow had never heard of them, but was immediately smitten by their sophistication. They were a combination of the Manhattan Transfer musically and the Marx Brothers comedy. And Bruce Sussman says the comedian harmonists had an amazing stage-worthy story, rising from impoverished street musicians in Berlin to international celebrities, performing with singers like Marlena Dietrich and Josephine Baker. They sold millions of records at a time when the recording industry was in its infancy. They made 13 films, performed in the greatest concert halls around the world, And 1933, Hitler comes to power, and some of our group members are Jewish. And how they confront their collision course with history is our second act. Harmony, did we have harmony? But that's just about all we have. Suddenly, a little harmony, and the poverty's not so bad. The beauty of it is that, you know, in the most chaotic time in history, Three Jews and three Gentiles found harmony. Warren Carlyle is the show's director and choreographer. They literally found harmony when the world around them was pulling people apart. The show has gone through many iterations and productions over the years, but now harmony is framed as a memory play. The last surviving member of the group, a character known as Rabbi, speaks directly to the audience. He's played by Broadway veteran Chip Zion. The show is somewhat through the eyes of my character, but 
I also get to weave in and out of the action a little bit. When he was working on the show in the 1990s, Barry Manilow actually met the real Rabbi Sikowski, who turned out to be an elderly neighbor who lived just a block away from Manilow in Palm Springs, California. He was adorable. He went right back to the Bordeville world. He said if they hadn't destroyed what we did, we would have been bigger than the Beatles. Sierra Bogus plays the rabbi's wife, a Gentile woman named Mary. She is pragmatic and sees the problems the group is facing before they do. Bogus says the cast did research and spoke with a historian. And he said that the Jews in that time had too much hope and not enough fear. That's really stuck with me, and I wrote that on almost every page of each scene that I would start. Every day as I sit and sew at my window, I look out on a world that's tearing apart. This is what I see, and what do you see? The second act brings the Nazi threat quite literally into the audience, says director Warren Carlyle. When that particular officer walks down the aisle of the Barrymore Theater, you know the world has changed because our room has changed. Harmony may feel especially relevant now because the world outside the room has changed. But Barry Manilow says, unfortunately, the show has always seemed relevant. Every time we mounted this show, everybody would say, oh, this is the perfect time for Harmony, because there was always this anti-Semitism thing going on all the time, every single time. This was the perfect time for Harmony. But of course, now it's very relevant. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space next month for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. That's Tuesday, December 19th. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, explains why you would want to work there or not. Free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, massages, you name it. Bring your dog to work, bring your other pets. We had one employee decide that the policy allowed him to bring his boa constrictor to work. I'm Peter Sagal. Listen to this week's show with the animal of your choice. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Sarah McCammon. Good morning. After a delay, more hostages are free in Israel. We'll have the latest on the tense pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. Also, with so much attention on Gaza, we take a closer look at Israel's military strategy in the West Bank. Later, we remember a beloved New Orleans musician who recorded part of his last album in an unconventional way. Instead of having Walter confined to a vocal booth, we decided to put him on the couch in the control room, turn off the lights, and just create that relaxed atmosphere. It's Sunday, November 26th. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. On this day three of a four-day temporary ceasefire, it's expected that there will be another release of hostages abducted by Hamas today. So far, two American women and one American child have not yet been released in an exchange of hostages for Palestinians jailed in Israel. But this morning, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is saying... That could change. He spoke on NBC's Meet the Press. The initial hostage deal involves the release of women and children. And there are three Americans in that category, two women and one young child. And we have reason to believe that one of those Americans will be released today. But until we see her out uh, safely from Gaza in the hands of uh, the authorities and ultimately in the hands of her family, Uh, then we won't be certain. Sullivan says the situation is developing moment by moment. And in general, the White House says it is hopeful the ongoing hostage releases by Hamas will include American citizens, including a four-year-old child. At a minimum, they expect the release of the Americans to unfold in the coming days. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. President Biden was briefed throughout the day on the uncertainty over the hostage deal implementation, the White House says. 
Earlier Saturday, Hamas delayed the release of hostages because they said Israel was blocking aid to northern Gaza. After a few hours of delay, Hamas released 13 Israeli and four foreign hostages. Biden spoke with the Emir of Qatar and the Qatari Prime Minister, and senior U.S. officials were also in touch with Israeli, Qatari, and Egyptian officials during the day. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. So yesterday, in total, Hamas handed over a total of 17 hostages, and in return, Israel says it released 39 Palestinian prisoners. Among those freed during the pause so far, nine-year-old Ohad Munder Zakri and grandmother Ruthie Munder, both taken hostage by Hamas in a brutal raid on Israel October 7th. NPR spoke with Itai Raviv, the cousin of Ohad. So I haven't been able to see them yet, but I have spoken uh, to them on the phone. Uh, they're doing okay, uh, not the best. Uh, they seem fine physically, uh, mentally. Uh, they're still in shock. Uh, it's been uh, quite a nightmare for, for us and obviously for them. The release of detainees was delayed for several hours in part because of Palestinian concerns about aid to northern Gaza. MasterCard reports Black Friday retail sales this week in the U.S. were 2.5% higher than this time last year. Financial analysts in general are seeing robust online spending, Adobe Analytics forecasts, that's only going to increase tomorrow when it anticipates shoppers will spend a record $12 billion. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. If you're returning from a Thanksgiving weekend away, then you might want to get going. The State Department of Transportation expects major delays on roads from about 10 this morning to 10 tonight. The most congested areas typically are the Mass Pike, 93, 91, and 84. Repairs on the Sumner Tunnel are paused this weekend to help alleviate the traffic. The MBTA also is running additional free Silver Line service to and from Logan Airport this weekend. An Avon man who's been missing since early September has been found dead in a well on his property. The Norfolk County DA's office says a family member first spotted the body of 45-year-old Keith McKechnie. Authorities say there were no obvious signs of trauma, but an autopsy will be conducted. Police had learned that McKechnie had been known to regularly walk the neighborhood. This week marks the 81st anniversary of Boston's deadliest fire and the deadliest nightclub fire in history. Groundbreaking for a permanent memorial takes place today. Today's vigil will be held at Statler Park on Stewart Street near the site of the Coconut Grove nightclub that burned down in 1942. Paul Miller is the president of the Coconut Grove Memorial Committee and says a lot of care has been taken with the plan. A replica of the front of the club, three archways where the revolving door stood, where many of the victims died. It will have on it 490 individual names on both sides, memorializing the people that perished as a result of the fire. Because of the Coconut Grove fire, building codes were changed all over the country. The tragedy also led to medical advancements in treatment of burns and pulmonary care. This afternoon, the Patriots are on the road against the New York Giants. In Boston tonight, the Celtics host the Atlanta Hawks. It's 34 degrees in Boston with increasing clouds today and highs reaching the mid-40s. Tonight, some rain. Rain will be heavy at times, low around 40 degrees. Then tomorrow, some rain likely in the morning, then gradual clearing. Monday's highs in the low 50s. Looking ahead to Tuesday, some sunshine and a high around 40. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, 
committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Aisha Roscoe is away. The temporary ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas hit some bumps yesterday when Hamas initially delayed the release of a second group of hostages. Today, Hamas is supposed to release a third group, and in turn, Israel is to free more Palestinian prisoners. For details on this and what to expect next, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Hi, Greg. Hi, Sarah. So tell us more about yesterday's snag with the exchange of hostages and prisoners. What happened? So Hamas was supposed to release 13 Israelis on Saturday afternoon, but it didn't happen on time. And eventually, over the next couple hours, it emerged that Hamas was intentionally delaying the release. It claimed not enough humanitarian aid was reaching northern Gaza, which it says is part of the ceasefire agreement. Now, Israel said aid trucks were going to northern Gaza. So Qatar, the main broker of the ceasefire, stepped in, as did Egypt and the U.S., and all this talking took more than seven hours, but shortly before midnight, Hamas did release the 13 Israeli hostages, as well as four citizens of Thailand who were working in Israel and had been uh, taken hostage. And then a little after midnight, Israel released the 39 Palestinian prisoners. Now, the freed Israeli hostages are a mix of women and children. What more can you tell us about them? So it was eight children and five women released uh, yesterday. One of the children, Emily Hand, who just turned nine years old, has a rather remarkable story. She slept over at a friend's house the night before the Hamas massacre in southern Israel back on October 7th. And that home where she stayed was attacked. And Israeli officials initially thought she was among those killed, and that's what they told her father, Tom Hand, who gave some very, very gut-wrenching interviews after that. But then a couple weeks later, Israeli officials came back to him and said they'd uncovered evidence that Emily was alive and was being held by Hamas. Um, What an emotional roller coaster for the family. I mean, any word on how they're doing? Well, you know, we keep getting twists and turns. So Emily was among those freed last night, and there's video of her running to embrace her father. Um, We should also note that Emily's stepmother, or sorry, Emily's mother died of cancer when she was just two years old, and her stepmother was killed in the Hamas attack on October 7th. And she was presumably being held in the tunnels under Gaza, and it's very unlikely she would have known about the death of her stepmother before she was freed. Mm. And this is really one of the cruel twists of these uh, hostage releases. They've uh, been uh, key figures in in the larger Gaza war, yet they were kept in the dark, literally and figuratively, uh, held in these underground Hamas tunnels and very little knowledge of the extent of the attack. And so as this hostage ordeal ends for some of them, they're now receiving the additional shock of learning that family and friends were killed. Hmm. And what can you tell us about the Palestinian prisoners? So these are the 39 Palestinians that Israel freed uh, uh, for a second day in a row, that exact number. This uh, group last night was 
33 teenagers and six women. Uh, they were greeted by cheering family members and supporters in the West Bank where they were released. Now, Israel had detained some of them without charge. Others were held for relatively minor offenses such as stone throwing, and some were convicted of serious crimes such as stabbings. Now, these releases of the Israeli hostages and the Palestinian prisoners are supposed to continue today and tomorrow. And if it all goes according to plan, about 50 Israeli, host Israeli hostages will be freed overall, along with around 150 Palestinian prisoners. Right. And Greg, given the snags that developed on Saturday, I have to ask, what are we expecting today? Well, we could certainly see more complication. Lots of things could go wrong. Um, the, on a positive note, Hamas has sent Israel a list of hostages to be released uh, today. We're expecting that this afternoon. And we did see on Saturday that other countries, Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S., are deeply invested in making this work and are standing by to help. Um, but we've seen uh, disagreements, including this uh, Israel-Hamas dispute over how many aid trucks should go to northern Gaza, an area largely controlled by Israeli ground troops. And uh, this ceasefire could be extended beyond Monday, uh, a day at a time for up to 10 days. But Israel says that's the absolute extent of it, and it will resume military operations after that. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thanks so much, Greg. Sure thing, Sarah. The past couple of days of ceasefire and prisoner exchanges have been a reprieve from seven weeks of fighting between Israel and Hamas. It started when Hamas launched a deadly attack in southern Israel on October 7th and kidnapped more than 240 people. But Gaza isn't the only Palestinian front in this war. Almost 58 miles away, the West Bank is partially controlled by the Israeli military. The areas controlled by Palestinians are ruled by the Palestinian Authority. So why has Israel been launching attacks on the West Bank in recent weeks? And what is Israel's strategy behind the curfews, drone strikes, and deadly raids there? I spoke to retired General Kenneth Frank McKenzie, former head of U.S. Central Command on Friday. I started by asking him about the military strategy at play. Palestinians say Israeli actions in the West Bank amount to collective punishment and that they had nothing to do with the Hamas attack on October 7th. Israel says its forces have been responding to terrorist attacks. What are you seeing unfold in the West Bank in terms of a military strategy there? Well, I think one of the, one of the fundamental concepts of the Israeli approach to the, to the war in Gaza is to prevent it from widening. And so I think they are not interested in further turmoil in, in the West Bank. So I think if, if when the Israelis operate in there, they're actually going after uh, elements that are attempting to strike against them in the West Bank. Since the start of the war, there have been more reported attacks, though, from Israeli settlers against Palestinians in the West Bank, with at least eight being gunned down by settler militias, according to the United Nations. There have also been reports that the U.S. delayed shipping some weapons to Israel over concerns that officials are using them to arm settlers in the West Bank. What do you make of these outbreaks of violence? All conflicts have to have some form of a political settlement at the end. Ultimately, if there's going to be some form of a long-term way forward, there's going to have to be some vision of a two-state solution. It's not going to involve Hamas, but it probably has to involve the Palestine Authority or some other Arab entity from a coalition of nations that might be willing to contribute. And settler violence against uh, Palestinians in the West Bank does not help that objective. I want to talk more about the Israeli military actions. Israel says its goal is to eradicate Hamas. The West Bank isn't controlled by Hamas. Most of it, uh, what's known as the occupied West Bank, is under Israeli control. 
what more can you say about what or who Israelis may be targeting there? So I think there are a variety of extremist groups that operate in the West Bank. I, I agree with you. It's, it's largely Palestinian Authority control. Not a lot of Hamas, if any, operates in there. But nonetheless, there are entities there that have attacked Israel. And of course, you've also mentioned the violence that's perpetrated against some of the Palestinians by Israeli settlers there. It's a very difficult situation. Look, my observation from afar, and without knowing the precise details of the back and forth is, Israel very much needs to keep a lid on this because I believe the West Bank has to be part of a long-term solution. And to approach it any other way is, is to just not have a strategic vision for the future. Big picture, you've said that Israel is trying to avoid a a wider war. I wonder if you can say more about that and and specifically what Israel is trying to achieve with its operations in the West Bank, because there are operations there. Sure. I think think they're attempting to prevent attacks from developing against Israel. And we can all argue about why those attacks are occurring. Is it because of settler violence? violence? Is it related to other things? But I think that what they're trying to do is scope and scale them to the to the most minimal scale possible. But as you know, those attacks are continuing. And the larger picture is this, frankly, when, when Israel went into Gaza, in my, my view, they're trying to accomplish sort of five things. One is the dismantlement of Hamas, both politically and militarily, and its ability to, to, to attack Israel. Uh, the second thing is uh, you want to actually uh, prevent civilian casualties to the maximum extent possible. Hard to do because of the way Hamas is embedded in the civilian infrastructure there. The third thing they're trying to do is prevent casualties, minimize casualties to the Israeli Defense Force and Israeli citizens in Israel. The fourth thing would be to try to recover as many hostages as possible. Clearly, you know, some of that is occurring now. We see that process underway right now. I'm not optimistic that all the hostages are going to come back anytime soon, but that's just my opinion. And the final thing, and, and the thing we've talked about a little bit before, is they don't want this conflict to widen. They don't want it to involve Lebanese Hezbollah. They don't want it to involve uh, the West Bank, and they certainly don't want it to involve Iran. You've said that ultimately, long term, you think that that if there's any hope of resolution here, it will have to come in the form of a two-state solution. But as you know, there have been many attempts toward that over many years that have failed. Do you have any hope that at the end of the day here, there's going to be any progress in that direction, particularly after this war, which has been so painful? Well, you know, the 1973 war, the surprise attack on Israel launched by Egypt, Syria, and, and some other Arab nations, actually produced profound strategic opportunity that led to a peace accord between Egypt and Israel that has been sort of the foundation of peace in the Middle East ever since. So as bloody as this fight might seem right now, this conflict brings an opportunity perhaps for a reset. Is there a risk that in targeting the West Bank, Israel may further radicalize some Palestinians, even ones who don't support Hamas? I think that's a very real risk. I think that that's that's the, the difficulty in all kinds of counterinsurgency operations. And I think that's a very real risk that, uh, that, that they run, and I'm sure the Israelis recognize that. That's retired General Kenneth Frank McKenzie. General McKenzie, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks. It was great to join you today. listening to NPR News.
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, Georgia lawmakers are set to hold a special session to consider new political maps after a judge found the state's existing districts dilute the power of black voters. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with The Heart Sellers by Lloyd Suh and directed by May Adralis. Set on Thanksgiving 1973 through December 23rd, HuntingtonTheater.org and New Arts Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Registration open for winter classes at NewArtsCenter.org. There is nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live wherever you are. Get the free WBUR app today. It's 38 degrees in Boston, increasing clouds today, and highs reaching the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is saying this morning the U.S. expects at least one American will be released by Hamas today. He's telling interviewers he doesn't want to give false hope and the situation is unfolding moment by moment. Sullivan is saying the now four-day temporary pause in hostilities could be extended in Gaza. He says that is up to Hamas. Yesterday, the release of those kidnapped by Hamas was delayed for several hours, in part because of Palestinian concerns that enough aid was not flowing into northern Gaza. Since then, dozens of supply trucks have moved into that region. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon, filling in for Aisha Roscoe. The United Nations Climate Summit, known as COP28, gets underway in Dubai this week. As if to underscore the challenge of nations coming together to address climate change, the conference takes place during the hottest year on record, and the host country, the United Arab Emirates, is one of the world's top oil producers. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Kelly Sims-Gallagher. She's an environmental policy professor and the dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. For many years now, we've been hearing increasingly dire warnings from climate scientists about the global situation. So what is at stake in this meeting? What are the expectations for what might be achieved? Well, this summer, according to NASA, was the warmest year on record. In fact, it was 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer, or in Fahrenheit, 2.1 degrees warmer than the average summer between 1951 and 1980. And this means we are perilously close to the limits set by the Paris Agreement in 2015, which was 2 degrees Celsius, or ideally 1.5 degrees. In other words, Uh, Countries around the world have not done enough to reduce emissions, 
And as a result, the warming is not only increasing, but accelerating more quickly than scientists anticipated. You mentioned the Paris Climate Agreement, of course, the treaty that former President Trump pulled out of and, and President Biden returned the U.S. to being part of. How much has the back and forth from the United States complicated these efforts? I do think it has taken a toll. There's much less trust of the United States that it will honor its commitments either to reduce emissions or to honor its pledges to deliver climate finance to help developing countries reduce their emissions. And in fact, that is really the essence of the problem now, because while many industrialized countries have begun to reduce their emissions, a lot of developing country emissions are still growing. And in order for many of these poor and vulnerable countries to be able to develop their economies more cleanly, they need assistance from industrialized countries. And what do you make of the host of this climate summit, the UAE, one of the world's top oil producers, as we've said? It's a very challenging situation because, of course, a major oil and gas producer is unlikely to agree to language that would phase down or phase out fossil fuels. And in fact, this was one of the big controversies of the G20 summit because some countries are proposing a complete phase out of fossil fuels. And the UAE will almost certainly not agree to language such as that. Now, this summit is taking place against quite a backdrop in the Middle East and globally. How much are these you know, serious crises and concerns around the world an impediment to making progress on climate diplomacy at this time? World leaders are understandably distracted by the urgency of today's crises. And this is kind of the essence of the problem with tackling climate change. It always seems like you can put off the action for one more year to reduce emissions. But the longer we keep putting off taking the climate problem seriously, the harder it gets for us to achieve our goals. And we do, in fact, need to reduce emissions to zero by mid-century. So to imagine we will go from a current rate of growth that is still quite dramatic and unabated to peaking global emissions and bringing them all the way to zero in the space of just 25 years is indeed increasingly hard to imagine. You worked on climate policy for a time during the Obama administration and at the State Department. Is there any hope here? Are you seeing any positive signs that governments and industry are making progress? I do see quite a bit of hope in the fact that Many industrialized countries have already peaked their emissions and begun to reduce them. In fact, the UK not only peaked its emissions, but has cut them by half. And Germany has cut its emissions by more than 30%. The United States is down not nearly as much as those two countries, but the United States is on a pathway down. And of course, finally passed legislation last year in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is indeed really spurring a very dramatic increase in the development of clean energy and clean energy manufacturing, which will transform the U.S. economy. Kelly Sims-Gallagher, Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. 
turn down the blinking lights, break out the seasonal snacks, and settle down on the couch, it is holiday movie time. Which means die hard, right? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Maybe, but later today on All Things Considered with Scott Detrow, a discussion about another holiday movie with Alan Rickman, Love Actually. And spoiler, there will be some hating going on, but also love for the Will Ferrell classic, Elf. You stink. I think you're gonna have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. Tune in for that spirited conversation on your phone, your smart speaker, or through the magic of radio. Erica Jung's novel, Fear of Flying, is narrated by a young writer named Isadora Wing. She's on her second husband and is searching for love, independence, purpose, and no-strings-attached sexual pleasure. The book was first published in 1973, a time when it was not widely acceptable for women to actively seek out those things, much less write about them. Fear of Flying went on to sell millions of copies, and now a new edition is being released to mark the 50th anniversary of the book. Before we get into it, a note to listeners, this conversation will include discussions about sex. Erica Jong's daughter, the writer and podcaster Molly Jong Fast, wrote a foreword to the new edition of her mother's book, and she joins me now. Hi, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, usually we ask authors to read a section of a book, and we're not going to ask you to read your mother's Thank writing you. about sex. <laughs> it's very generous of you. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. You know, as Erica Jong's daughter, you you write that you didn't have the same relationship with this book that many people did. You, you say it felt deeply uncomfortable at times uh, because, as you say, the protagonist was a thinly veiled version of your mom. Do you remember when you first read it and what you were thinking that first time? So I read like about 200 pages and I thought, oh, a lot of this stuff really happened. And then I thought, you know, you don't have to read any more of this. And I put it down and I never read it. I thought I had this moment of like, you know, it's okay. I don't have to know everything. And I think my mental health has been the better for it, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Do you remember about how old you were at that time? I was about 15, I think, and I was reading it. And, you know, it was not like a secret. You know, this is the... The curse and the blessing of being a Nepo baby, right, is that you uh, you get all these advantages and you get special treatment, but you also get this sense in which people know about you, things about you that you can't, you don't know what they are, but you know they know things about you. And that in the that can make you very crazy because you start thinking, what does this person know about me? What does this person think about me? I... I'm just glad I got out of it alive. <laughs> it was not good. I mean, look, the, the reality is I'm very grateful because I had huge advantages from being the daughter of someone famous. Who even knows? You know, I'd probably be like a butter farmer in Iowa had I not been born into this family. You know, that doesn't sound so bad, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I like cows, but, you know, it's impossible to know like what part of my, the course of my life was helped along by the fame. You've said that fear of flying shaped the trajectory of your life in many ways. Why do you think it was important to re-release it 50 years later? I think especially right now, after the fall of Roe, I mean, I don't think like I think of my mother and second wave feminism gets a real bad rap because they had 
Certainly some of the second wave feminists turned out to really be disappointing. When I think about my mother, I think about how she would always say to me, we got a lot of things wrong, but we got you Roe. We made Roe the law of the land, right? 1973, you have bodily autonomy. I always, you know, she'd always be like, if you ever needed an abortion, she would be be like 10 years old. And you'd be like, if you ever need it. And I was like, mom, what are you even talking about? But the point was that this was something that had not been available to women, right? That you, you were sort of, you couldn't, you didn't have choices. If you got pregnant, you had no choices. And what I think is interesting is, right now in America, we have lost Roe, right? We have a real religious zealot called Mike Johnson, who is the Speaker of the House. So I think that when you have a book like Fair Flying, which reminds you of what it meant to have the pill and what it meant to have abortion and what it meant, what the sea change was from not being able to have a bank account without a husband, you know, or a father on it. We have come very far and we have very far we could come back to. And I think that's a really important thing that we should be remembering that the world of 1973 is, it, it, it could, we could be back there. A lot has happened in 50 years, clearly. Notwithstanding the fact that you, uh, for, for reasons I fully understand, <laughs> never finished reading Fear of Flying, what, what parts of it do you think will resonate with readers today? And are there parts that might not have aged so well? Yeah, I mean, anything written in 1973, and I think it's really important. My mom was a affluent Jewish woman who grew up in a certain kind of very cloistered way. You know, there wasn't the kind of intersectionality that we work really hard now to be able to include. It wasn't inclusive, and that was one of the biggest problems with that kind of feminism was that it didn't include women of color, that it didn't strive for the inclusivity that we now know is so important. And I think even knew then it was so important. But there's really interesting stuff in there. And the reverberations, the way it changed, the way we write about sex, the way we think about sex, the way we think about liberation, that is really important. You know, there are a lot of people who come over to me and say things like, their mothers left their husbands because of my mom's book, which I think is a dubious legacy. But Did they feel good about it years later? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I really want to not cause destruction in other people's lives, but maybe it worked out and maybe they were supposed to leave those husbands. I don't know. You know, that gets me a little itchy when people say that. You know, I've read that your mother received a lot of fan mail um, from readers asking for relationship advice about things like whether to leave their husbands and sometimes even about bigger questions about just how to be a woman in the world. Do you know how she responded to them or if she responded to them? One of the great uh, weirdnesses of my life was that people would ask my mother for advice. And she was, I love her so much. And she is such a fabulous woman. She had some of the worst advice for me I'd ever gotten in my life. I mean, just incredibly bad advice. So I pray to God that these women never got a letter back. Look, you don't get married four times without having some judgment issues. I mean, I actually was struck by what bad judgment she had about people. But 
you know, some of what happens when you're famous is that people think they know you. So I think people thought they knew her, which maybe they did. As this book comes out again 50 years later and reaches a new audience that was not born at the time, what do you hope the impact and the legacy might be of Fear of Flying? You know, books like this didn't exist before it. I mean, that's an incredible thing. And and I think it's a really important to sort of track the trajectory of feminism. And it's just such a, it's really like a little time capsule. So I think there's a lot to be gleaned from that and from the experience of the publication of it and from how the world changed since then. That's writer Molly Jongfast. She's a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and host of the Fast Politics podcast. Her mother, Erica Jong's best-selling novel, Fear of Flying, is 50 years old. Molly, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Georgia lawmakers returned to Atlanta this week for a special legislative session to redraw the state's political maps. This after a federal judge said several districts violated the Voting Rights Act and disenfranchised black voters. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler joins us now to explain what comes next. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Sarah. Okay, first, walk us through the original redistricting process. How have Georgia and its political maps changed in recent years? Well, Sarah, in the 2010s, Georgia was a fast-growing state, adding more than a million new residents, most of them in metro Atlanta, and most of them also younger and more diverse. But as Georgia's electorate changed, the partisan split in Congress and the state legislature didn't really keep up. And that's a result of Republican-drawn maps that were done in 2021. Several civil and voting rights groups sued over those maps, pointing to the specific growth in Georgia's black population over the last decade and arguing the redistricting maps, including state legislative maps that did add a couple more Democratic-leaning districts, were not able to give black voters the ability to elect candidates of their choice. So last month, a federal judge agreed with those claims and wrote, in essence, that while Georgia has made improvements in increasing political opportunities for black voters, in some parts of the state, that is not true. What exactly did the ruling say? Judge Steve Jones found that five of Georgia's 14 congressional districts violated the Voting Rights Act, as well as about two dozen seats in Georgia's state House and Senate, either by heavily consolidating black residents into a couple of districts or spreading them out over too many districts where they weren't really able to have much political power at the ballot box. Now, he ordered the legislature to create new maps by December 8th that create additional majority black districts in a couple of parts of Georgia, mainly Atlanta's western and southern suburbs, where there's been a huge demographic shift, but not necessarily a political one as far as state and federal lawmakers go. Yeah, I want to talk more about that. I mean, Georgia is a Republican-controlled state. The legislature is led by Republicans. The governor's a Republican. New majority black districts would typically elect Democrats, at least traditionally. What do we expect these new political boundaries to look like? Well, it's complicated because you can't just tweak a couple of districts here and there and leave everything else the same. As you said, there should be more districts where black voters can elect the candidate of their choice. But, Sarah, that doesn't mean more Democratic lawmakers overall. That's because Republicans could keep more of an advantage by targeting some of Georgia's Democratic-leaning districts that are majority white, changing their composition and not violating the law, because, reminder, it's legal to gerrymander for partisan purposes. 
speaking of partisan goals, I mean, flipping even one seat in a state like Georgia could change the balance of power in Washington, D.C., right? Yes. Stop me if you've heard this before. Political decisions in Georgia might have national implications. I mean, if you just look at the congressional maps, Georgia is just one place where fights over the Voting Rights Act and Black representation are ongoing. Different rulings over gerrymandering by both parties could help decide which one of them controls the House next year. Plus, these legal challenges working through the courts could alter how the Voting Rights Act is or is not enforced for future mapmaking. Case in point here, Georgia officials are appealing this ruling even as they meet to change the maps in the meantime. That's Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler. Stephen, thanks as always. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. On the MBTA, get ready for some Green Line disruptions. To accommodate repairs, the T is suspending service on portions of the Green Line starting tomorrow and lasting through next Sunday. Service will be suspended on the B branch between North Station and Babcock, on the C and D branches between North Station and Kenmore, and on the E branch between North Station and Heath Street. Shuttle buses will replace trolleys on the B, C, and D routes. The T says E branch riders should use Route 39 buses, which will be free. As for today, if you are wrapping up some Thanksgiving travel, then you'll likely encounter delays. The State Department of Transportation expects major slowdowns on roads from about 10 this morning to about 10 tonight. The most congested areas typically are the Mass Pike, 93, 91, and 84. Repairs on the Sumner Tunnel are paused this weekend to help alleviate traffic. It is 38 degrees in Boston, increasing clouds today and highs in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and the home for little wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. TheHome.org. On this week's Wait, Wait, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, explains why you would want to work there or not. Free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, massages, you name it. Bring your dog to work. Bring your other pets. We had one employee decide that the policy allowed him to bring his boa constrictor to work. I'm Peter Sagal. Listen to this week's show with the animal of your choice. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. 
Ireland saw the worst public disorder in decades play out on the streets of its capital city, Dublin, on Thursday night, with looting, arson, and assaults on police officers. As Willem Marx reports, it was all sparked by a single incident, but the subsequent riot involving hundreds of people has complex implications for Irish society. A knife attack outside a school in central Dublin left three young children injured, one of them seriously. Within hours, online messages spread that the suspect was from overseas and groups of protesters descended on the crime scene. They surrounded surprised investigators, according to Ireland's most senior police officer, Drew Harris. We could not have anticipated that in response to a terrible crime, the stabbing of schoolchildren and their teacher, that this would be the response. Police still have not released details of the original suspect or his motives. The situation escalated rapidly with fireworks thrown at riot police. Large crowds of masked or hooded young men setting alight police vehicles and a city tram. Downtown stores looted and smashed. The following morning, parts of Dublin city centre still smouldered as burned-out buses were towed away. Drew Harris, the police chief, laid blame squarely on hard-right activists. We have a complete lunatic hooligan faction uh, driven by far-right uh, ideology and also then this disruptive tendency here and engaged then in serious violence. The leader of Sinn Féin, Ireland's main opposition party, Mary Lou Macdonald, said the right-wing riot had been preventable. This was an unacceptable, unprecedented collapse in policing. The idea that this violence was unforeseeable is frankly nonsense. These hate-filled mobs have threatened and brought violence to our streets before. Among the bigoted chants the night before, one directed against Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach or Prime Minister, whose father was from India. Varadkar, in a press conference Friday, described how pregnant mothers in a nearby hospital had been endangered, not by patriots, but by racists. These people claim to be defending Irish citizens, yet they put in danger the newest and most vulnerable and most innocent people. Those involved brought shame on Dublin, brought shame on Ireland, and brought shame on their families and themselves. But these violent actions did not occur in a vacuum, says social policy professor Matthew Donohoe from University College Dublin. There's lots of kind of interrelated fears and pressures that on some level are very complicated economic, social and political pressures that are kind of interlinked. What we see kind of with the trigger of the, of the riot is a small but vocal far-right faction that is able to uh, latch onto these fears and give people what looks to be you know, a simple, straightforward answer that involves demonising certain groups. Across Europe, the demonisation of migrants has helped fuel several far-right populist parties, including that of Geert Wilders. 35 the Dutch politician who's called some immigrants scum, but won the largest share of votes in the Netherlands' recent parliamentary elections. According to Owen Worth, global politics professor at the University of Limerick, incidents like this could become more common in Ireland because disenchanted voters have no legitimate political representation, unlike elsewhere in Europe. So nearly every single country has some sort of far-right party. And on the one hand, you can look at Ireland and say, well, that's a good thing. Ireland has been heralded as this country without a far-right party. Yet, possibly as a result of this, you've got these massive civil disputes and civil unrest, which is growing. And it's almost like they're sort of tapped out, catched out of the political system. 
they've sort of bubbled over, really, at, at the street level. But the street violence Thursday, says Jane Souter, a professor of political communications at Dublin City University, should still act as a wake-up call. The authorities really will have to act pretty quickly because we've been very lucky in Ireland without having this kind of far right. There's still an opportunity, I think, to try to put a lid on it, but that's going to require some sort of action and coordination. Prime Minister Varadkar announced the government will pass new laws allowing facial recognition software to track rioters captured on surveillance cameras and giving police new powers to prosecute those who promote hate speech online. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in Dublin. You already know this, but we're going to remind you anyway. In Wisconsin, cheese is king. So when the chance came up to become a cheese taster, 250 people applied for five open jobs. Their goal is, well, to eat a lot of cheese and help cheese makers create a creamier cheddar or a more melty mozzarella. I think I'm ready for a career change. Anyway, Mayan Silver from member station WUWM in Milwaukee has this report. In a state where cheese is a big business, getting the taste just right is a serious undertaking. Training for professional cheese tasters teaches them how to identify flavors and speak the same lingo. So instead of fancy crackers, grapes, and prosciutto, laid out in front of the five taste testers, there are vials of liquids with labels like buttery and rancid, sample cups with foam to measure textures, and spit cups. This will be your guys' first quiz. Tell me what you thought, basic taste-wise. Brandon Prohaska, the leader of this training at UW-Madison Center for Dairy Research, has each student pluck a cube of Colby from a tray. The conversation here immediately gets pretty sciencey. You can get diacetyl in beer sometimes, and this was closer to like what I feel like I'd taste in beer when there's like a butteriness to it. Okay. That's Brian Hansen, one of UW's new tasters. Teacher Prohaska says the goal during these sessions is to get the real human reaction to eating cheese in a methodical and systematic way. The panelists identify a cheese's traits like creamy or bitter and rate their intensity. That data can be used by graduate students, cheese producers, and pizza makers. So we're thinking of a lot of different practical applications, things like how do we extend the shelf life of a product? How do we make something have an even better flavor. Or maybe there's a new technology coming out that's not quite you know, replicating the flavor people expect. So, armed with a notebook and a color wheel, taste tester Kelly Cluck learns how to identify flavors. Maybe not so hard for an aficionado who has a few wine tasting certifications. The thing that's great about this, I feel like I've taken a hobby and I'm actually getting paid to do it now. When Prohaska sends chunks of full-fat mozzarella around the table, they talk about what it tastes like. Again, just kind of that vinegary, citrusy kind of note. Lemon grassy. Lemon grassy, yeah. And at the university, there's a protocol for everything. When to chew, when to hold and release your nose to block or pick up aromas from the cheese. It's not exactly what taster Carolyn Haswell expected. I actually signed up because I love pizza, I love making pizza, and it's like, oh, I know all the types of pizza around the country, and then I come here and it's like, it's experimental cheese, enjoy. When they do taste pizzas, no eating the crust, just the cheese, please. This one's so good, warm. I'll let you know when it's ready to taste. One pan comes out of the oven, then another and another. 
They even use a ruler to test the stretchiness of the mozzarella. It's an efficient way to put the cheese that could end up on your next delivery order through the science lab. For NPR News, I'm Mayan Silver in Madison. We could spend the next hour listing famous musicians from New Orleans, but the list of the city's musicians more beloved than Walter Wolfman Washington is much, much shorter. Washington's mixture of blues, funk, and jazz delighted locals for six decades. He started out as a backing musician, appeared regularly at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, then returned to New Orleans, where he ended up making several records with his own band, the Roadmasters. Washington died last year at the age of 79, but he did not leave the city and the fans he loved empty-handed. His album, Feels So at Home, which he began before the pandemic and finished shortly before his death, is out now. Ben Elman is also a fixture in the New Orleans music scene. He's a saxophonist for the band Galactic and the producer of the new album, and he joins me now. Welcome, Ben. Uh, Thank you for having me. So you've lived in the New Orleans area, I guess, since the late 1980s. How did you first hear about Walter, or Wolfman as he was called, Washington, and how did you end up meeting him? Well, being a young musician just showing up in New Orleans, uh, I had heard he was the guy to check out. And uh, I first saw Walter at a club in New Orleans called the Maple Leaf, and he held down a weekly gig on Saturdays there for many years. I remember walking in and seeing Walter taking a solo on his guitar with his teeth for the first time I was there. And then he let out this falsetto howl with so much emotions, it, it just gave me goosebumps. And then during the set break, I was at the bar and Walter came up next to me and ordered a drink. And I I told him how wonderful it was. And he spent the whole break talking to me, a a total stranger about music in New Orleans. And I think I showed up every Saturday, like many musicians, for the next couple of years. And that led to a collaboration or a friendship as well, I guess, that included his final album, what would be his final album, Feel So at Home, uh, which he started working on before the pandemic. This album is, it's a little bit different, isn't it, from some of his earlier albums? Yeah, the idea from these albums were that we would go into the studio and uh, make a record that really focused on his singing. He spent six decades being in a band that really was was a party band and they provided the party. So we wanted to make a record that would be a little more stripped down and mostly be for people to sit down and listen to with a really relaxed quality. I feel so at home. I feel so at home I feel so at home Feel so at home You know, before we started these records, some of the records we sat down and listened to were like Johnny Hartman and John Coltrane, Nat King Cole, Ray Charles with Strings, and albums that had a real quiet but lush sound. So. He, he just loved those sort of vocal albums, and he never really got a chance to make something like that. Can I ask what your favorite track is on this album? Probably Lovely Day. I just think his vocals are really incredible on that song. These happy hours that are 
Ben, I really liked that one too. I just thought it was, it has such a, almost an innocence and a sweetness about it. You know, there's, there's kind of a funny story about that one. Um, we recorded that sort of towards the end of the process and he was struggling a little bit with his vocals. And I remember hearing a story about how Marvin Gaye recorded vocals laying down on a couch with a microphone suspended over him to sort of get an intimate feeling. So Instead of having Walter confined to a vocal booth, we decided to put him on the couch in the control room, turn off the lights, and just create that relaxed atmosphere. And I, I think it's one of the best vocals we got. And I think it was a real effortless performance, too. You know, there's another track I really liked on this album, I've Been Wrong For So Long. It has a different vibe. he trying to do there? Well, honestly, um, I've been wrong for so long. I think that was one of the tunes that was a little more up-tempo on the record, and I think that's a little, a little more uh, like maybe some of his earlier songs. And I think he always was a guy who brought the party, and I think his music was always up-tempo R&B. And for a lot of this record, it was he was placed in a jazz trio context with like sort of brushes and stand-up bass. And I think that was just a little bit of his time to like belt it out. You know, this would turn out to be his last album. Um, were you aware that he was sick or how sick he was? We knew that he got sick towards the end of making this record, so we definitely had to get in the studio and finish some things up, and he was having some problems singing in the end, but he played until the, the very end of his life, and he was playing shows, and he was out there performing like he has been for a long time. I have to ask, Ben, what does it feel like to have this album coming out and he's not around to hear it? Well, I think it's a beautiful thing that he left the world and he did get to hear it before he passed. We had a, a listening session at his house in the very end and he couldn't really speak, but we would play him songs and he would give us a thumbs up and smile. And I think he was proud of it because I think it just really showed a different side of his musicality and it was a part of music the part of music that he really loved and he loved vocal singers and being in that setting I think was something that he was really proud of. Ben Elman, musician and producer of Walter Wolfman Washington's posthumous album, Feel So at Home. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me.
Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Learn more about the music and artists you hear on NPR and discover new music by visiting npr.org music. There you can also watch a Tiny Desk concert or get an exclusive first listen of new music. Where my mother was living You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. It is 38 degrees in Boston with highs in the mid-40s today. Some rain tonight, heavy at times. Tomorrow, some rain likely in the morning, then clearing up and highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.